So we're starting a new series together uh, this morning. Uh, We're calling it Defining Moments, and today I'm going to be talking about the big story of the Bible, the big story of the Bible, our place in it. So many of you know that the Bible is 66 books, is written over roughly a 1,500-year period by about 40 different authors, people writing from different locations, different life situations. It's a big book. It's a complex book. And I want to talk about what ties all of that together, what brings the thousands of little stories together in one big, magnificent theme. And this is my, my, my one-sentence theme. The Bible is a story of God creating an eternal kingdom and a kingdom people on earth. God is creating an eternal kingdom and a kingdom people on earth. So I want to unpack that together and I'm going to start by looking at the first couple chapters of the book of Genesis. I'm going to start by reading Genesis 1, verses 26 to 28. And then I'm going to jump to chapter 2. So turn with me to Genesis 1, 26 to 28. I'm picking up near the end of the first chapter's creation narrative. And here's what, what, we're, what we read. Then God said... Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So, God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky over every living creature that moves on the ground. I'm going to flip to chapter 2, starting with verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth. And there was no one to work the ground, but streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the, whole, then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Jumping down to verse 15. No, no, let me keep going for a sec. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden. And there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now flipping down to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Now in chapter 1, what we do is we get a panoramic view of creation. 
In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created something out of nothing, order out of chaos, beauty out of barrenness. He created everything. He filled the earth and the sky and the seas with life. And then God created humankind, male and female. And it's clear from the way the language of Genesis flows that humankind is the apex of God's creation. He created them in his image, told them to be fruitful, to increase, to fill the earth, to rule over and subdue it, to work and take care of it. So from the big view, the big picture of Genesis 1, we, we get in Genesis 2 a kind of a close-up view of God creating. And that close-up view focuses on God's creation of humankind and God's provision for humankind. What God is doing is he's preparing a garden in which he places the human beings he has created. And I want to highlight three points here from Genesis 2. The word garden, the first point, the word garden here is the Hebrew word yan, gan. It refers to a cultivated garden, not something in the wild. The point here is that God developed a garden. He cultivated it. God was a gardener, and he cultivated it for a purpose. What was that purpose? That purpose was to create a place where human beings could flourish, to flourish, to know delight, not just to survive. God prepared a special place for the man and woman, just like parents prepare a special place for a newborn child. Many of you remember what it was like when you became pregnant and you were getting ready to receive this child that, the God, that God had birthed that it placed in your womb, so to speak. And many of you, you just, you just dreamt about what that child would be and you created a place for him and you, and you worked it and you fretted over the place and you wanted it, how did you want it to be? You wanted it to be perfect, right? You wanted that place to be safe and protected and beautiful so that it, so your child would really be happy there and flourish, Right? That's what God did with the Garden of Eden. He prepared a special place for his people so that they would flourish and know delight. God is a father king. He prepared that garden to be a special place and he lovingly placed his people in it. The word put, the verb put that we see in verse 15, Genesis 2.15 has two special uses elsewhere in the Bible. You can see it in the book of Numbers a number of times. It refers to God's rest or safety, which he gives to people in the world, and it also refers to the dedication of something before the presence of the Lord. So humankind was put in the garden where they could rest and be safe, and they were put in the garden uh, so that they could be, so that they could have unhindered fellowship with God, be in God's presence. Now, Genesis, 
2, 10 to 14 says something also, I didn't read that part, but it says something about the geography of the garden. It doesn't tell us enough to know where it is, really, but it does make something very clear. This is no little backyard garden. It's much bigger than that. It's bigger than a farm, bigger than a ranch. It's the size of a small country. What the author of Genesis is saying is, he meant it when he said, be fruitful, increase, fill the earth. He gave him plenty of space to spread out. He wanted them spread out. And not just in that place, but throughout the globe, as we see going on in Scripture. God is calling his first people, Adam and Eve, Eve to fill a country. Now, I have six quick summary points I want to make and then one big statement from the passage we just read. Point number one, God creates a special place, the Garden of Eden, a place of order, of beauty, of abundance and delight. Two, God creates this special place because he wants to place his people in it, Adam and Eve. Third point, God, you'll notice that there are peace through all of this. God prizes these people above all other creatures. He doesn't just speak them into existence. You notice in chapter one, when God brings creation into existence, he just says, he just speaks. God said, let there be light, and there was light. And let there be all this. He just speaks into existence. He doesn't do that with humankind. What does he do? He, he puts his hands into the dirt he gets his hands dirty and he forms them out of the dirt. He gets personally involved. There's something intimate, something very personal about what God does with humankind and his creation. He gets up close and real with them, puts his hand in the dirt and he forms them out of the dust of the ground and then he breathes into their nostrils. He gets up close, he breathes into their very nostrils. He breathes the breath of life into them. Human beings are the crown of God's creation. He formed them with his own hands. He breathed the breath of life into them. God has a fatherly love for the people of his kingdom. Fourth, God made his presence with them. He talks with them. He walks with them. He interacts with them. He's there with them. And they're there He's there with them, they're there with him. And then fifthly, he provides everything that they need, every tree, everything they, everything they need, everything they could possibly want or imagine. So this is every kind of tree pleasing to the eye, good for food. It's abundance, not just merely enough. And then sixth, God calls his people to participate with him in his ongoing work of creation. Human beings have exalted status with God. They are rulers, made rulers under God, in God's kingdom. God's people are called to work the ground, and they're called to take care of it. Now, there are two interesting Hebrew words here. The word for work the ground is the Hebrew word abad, which elsewhere is used to prepare, the sense of to pr prepare and tend. And then, in, and then the take care of the Hebrew word shamar. 
They use later in reference to the priests and the Levites serving in the tabernacle. They're called to minister or serve in the tabernacle, Abad, and they're called to protect and serve, uh, guard or protect in, uh, in the tabernacle, the word Shemar. So God's people in the garden are called to serve and protect the earth, to take responsibility for the earth, to ensure that, that all living things are able to, to be fruitful and increase in number, to f- develop further, to complete God's creation under his authority, according to his character and purpose. Now, there's a big idea embedded in that. When God created, his creation was perfect. But it was not complete What God is doing is he's calling humankind to participate with him in his ongoing work of creation. To increase the number, to develop the material universe that God has put into being out of nothing. They are called to develop. We are called to develop it using the gifts and talents and abilities he's put in us by virtue of being made in his image, in his likeness. We have agency in the world because God has created us with, a, with capacity to act. That's an amazing thing. It's a stunning thing. David, the psalmist, when he's thinking about this, he's just awestruck. It's mind-boggling to him. So he says, this is in Psalm 8. When I consider... Your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. What is mankind that you are mindful of him? Of them, actually, it says. Human beings that you care for them. You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands, flocks and herds and wild animals, birds, fish, All that swim in the sea. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. He's just stunned by who God is, by what he's done, and by what he's done for him and for all human beings. We should be stunned as well. It's an incredible and awesome thing. So what's God's intent in all of this? His intent that we would be his people, living in his presence, reigning in God's way as his stewards over his place, kingdom people, living joyfully under his rule. So, special place, set apart people, God's prized possession, full access to God's presence, abundant provision for life, participation in God's ongoing work. Here's my big statement. This is a picture of what the church is called to be in the world. Called to be in the world now. And it's a picture of what God intends the whole earth to be when Jesus returns 
and consummates his kingdom. And I'm going to develop that in a bit. Okay? But remember that. Remember that. Now, we're in the Garden of Eden. All this amazing stuff is going to happen. And then, and then it all crumbles. It just crumbles. What happened? Genesis chapter 3. A rival kingdom invades God's kingdom in the form of a serpent. And that serpent, whom we later, which later becomes clear, is uh, the devil really at work. That serpent tempted Adam and Eve to reject God as their king. God has one and only one prohibition. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They eat of that tree. Scott McKnight says, the story of sin in the Bible is the story of God's elect people wanting to be God-like instead of godly, of ruling instead of sub-ruling and being ruled. Wanting to be like God's is the essence of the fall and the ultimate folly of the whole human race. And what was the result of that? God's good creation came under the rule of the evil serpent. Everything that was once beautiful, was once perfectly whole, became scarred, broken, twisted, full of chaos. Adam and Eve in this safe place where they could rest and be in God's presence, they are exiled from the garden. They become alienated from God. They become alienated from their very selves. They become alienated from one another. And they become alienated from all the rest of creation. And all of us have both inherited and earned that alienation for ourselves. We are people who know and experience alienation in every realm of our lives. Since then, since the fall in the garden, there have been two opposing kingdoms on earth, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan, the seed of the woman, the seed of the serpent. So what did God do in response to human rebellion? God declared war. He declared war on this rival kingdom. He declared war not on his people. He declared war on the serpent, on the devil, on sin, on death. Genesis 3.15, God says to the serpent, he puts a curse on the serpent, and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Enmity, hatred, conflict between you and the woman. War between you and the woman. And between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Reference to what happens at the cross. Now, I want to talk about God's war. God's way of waging war is not through overwhelming force, but through pouring out his love, his overwhelming love and covenant faithfulness What God does is he demonstrates his goodness 
the goodness of his character, goodness of his purpose. He woos his people. He doesn't compel his people. God delivered his people from slavery. He protected them and provided for them in the wilderness. He he gave them his law to guide them. He gave them his presence and dwelt among them in the Holy of Holies in the temple. Again and again and again, he poured out love and grace upon them. He showed them his goodness, his faithfulness. He called them to be his people, to live under his rule. But Israel repeatedly rebelled against God's good rule. They rejected him. They rejected him as king. That's the story of the Old Testament, and it's the story of our lives, all of the human race. Yet even then, even then, God did not give up on his kingdom purpose, wooing a people for himself who would live in his place, his kingdom, under his good, just wise and loving rule. Ultimately, what God did is he sent his son, his one and only son, the Lord Jesus, the Messiah, to be king. Mark 1.15 says, the words of Jesus, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. All that The kingdom of Israel had been pointing to for centuries, but had always fallen short in. All of that was now becoming a reality. That's what Jesus meant when he said, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. It was becoming a reality reality because the true king had come and he was with them. When Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us, it was the kingdom of heaven breaking into the realm of earth. The kingdom of heaven breaking into the realm of earth, though not yet in fullness. But throughout his earthly ministry, Jesus, this is the words of Nancy Guthrie now, Jesus was constantly pulling back the veil to reveal what his kingdom would look like when his kingdom comes in all its fullness. So what did Jesus do? When you read, so Chapter 1 of Mark, going to the chapter, you see five slices of Jesus revealing his authority all in one place so that you understand what it means that the kingdom of God has come. Jesus healed diseases, showing that sickness and disease have no place in the kingdom when it comes in its fullness. He commanded demons to depart to show that no evil belongs in God's kingdom. He stilled the sea, showing that all nature submits, joyfully submits, Unlike human beings, all nature submits to his command in his kingdom. He fed the multitude, showing that there's abundant satisfaction to be found in his kingdom. He raised Lazarus from the dead, previewing the fact that when Jesus returns, all the bodies of his subjects will be raised, called to be with him, to exercise his authority under his rule and power forever in his kingdom. So here's a big point. Jesus brought the rule and authority of heaven to earth. Jesus brought the rule and authority of heaven to earth in his own person. But what Jesus did on earth, he called his disciples to do also. 
Mark 3.14, Jesus is calling disciples. He pointed 12 that they might be one with him. Two, that he might send them out to preach. And three, to have authority to drive out demons. His authority to drive out demons. Jesus' disciples are called to be with him to exercise his authority under his rule and purpose. Jesus brings his authority in his person, the authority of heaven into the realm of earth in his person, and he presses that authority into his disciples to, be, to bring the authority, the rule of heaven into earth as well. This is what we are called to be and to do. Jesus inaugurated his kingdom during his first coming to earth. He will bring his kingdom to consummation when he returns. The rule of heaven will descend to earth in its fullness and Jesus will reign over the new Jerusalem as its king. Let me read Revelation 21, 1 to 4, so you get a picture of what it's going to look like, what the kingdom of look the kingdom of heaven is here now, but not in its fullness. We experience aspects of it. We experience eternal life now, but not in its fullness. But we will one day. Revelation 21. Let me read the first four verses. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed. Amen. Thanks be to God. I said a few minutes ago that God's original creation was perfect but not complete from the very beginning the holy city the new jerusalem was what god intended the garden of eden to become a place of fullness and beauty and glory the holy city is what god intended to merge as god's people under god's rule and with his authority fulfill the mandate given to them to be fruitful and increase to rule the earth and subdue it, to fill the earth, to till the earth, take care of it. It will be a place where his people will be with him, using their gifts and talents and abilities to continue developing the material world that God brought into being out of nothing so that it becomes more and more a place of flourishing and more and more reveals the character and the beauty, the glory, the majesty of God to his praise and honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So God's people are called to continue the work that Adam and Eve started, what they started but did not finish. 
We are called, in the words, the language of Tim Keller, we are called to be city builders. We are called to be cultural gardeners in the world. Using the stuff that God has made and using the way he's made us to bring beauty and order and abundance and fruitfulness out of the material world, out of the creation. So whatever work that we do, God uses it to bring flourishing blessing even when it doesn't feel like it to us. Our work matters to God whether we're plumbers and electricians or whether we serve uh, Starbucks coffee or whether we're doctors and lawyers or whether we're personal attendants or whether we're musicians or whether we are artists or whether we are stonemasons or whether we are farmers. It, It even works for your pastors. God uses that. We're called to be cultural gardeners, ruling over the earth in a way that God, like a gardener rules over a garden, manage the earth, bringing out its full potential. We have not anywhere, seen anywhere near the full potential of the earth. That's what we're going to be doing in eternity, bringing out more and more of the fullness of the potential God has placed in it. We are called to be God's people in his place, in his presence, serving as his co-regents under his rule, to his glory and for the common good, now and for all eternity. So what does that mean for us? What does that mean for us here, now? In about three weeks, Journey is going to celebrate its eighth anniversary as a church, literally on October 28th. When Journey was being planned, when, we, when people were first thinking about what Journey Church would be, this new church plan, right from the very beginning, what we talked about was that Journey would be a place that would be intergenerational and multicultural, a place where people could be brought together, reconciled, a reconciled community coming together as one, Loving one another as brothers and sisters. That was part of the vision. And we talked about being in multiple locations throughout the city because we weren't just coming together to be together. We were coming together so that we could scatter throughout the city and bless the various nations of the, of the city. We were being called to be gardeners. We were called to be um, people of blessing in the various nations throughout the city. We're just beginning to see that part of the vision come into play as we work on our second location in Quinsigaman Village. What we, were, what we were thinking about, what we were praying about, what God was birthing in us back eight years ago, what's beginning to be formed now through all of us together, is what Jesus did when he was on earth. Wherever he went, he blessed people. He blessed people. They flourished under his good care, loving rule. What he called his disciples, we're beginning to do that. It's a glorious thing. So wherever we are in a city, whatever we do, whether it's volunteering in the schools or caring for the homeless or helping refugees resettle or cleaning up neighborhoods, we've done some of that, or, or uh, collecting clothes or, or uh, just building something beautiful, 
so that when people come in and say, oh, this is so nice. When we're doing all that, when we're doing all that, God is glorified. People are blessed. When we go out to our workplaces, and whatever we do in our workplace, and we do good work is under the Lord because we're trying to glorify God. People are blessed by that. They're encouraged. They encounter something of the rule of heaven coming down to earth. That's what we're called to do. That's what we are. We, we have yet to be all that we're going to be, but we are, we are seeing God reveal himself in and through us, and it's a beautiful thing. I am so excited about what God is doing through all of us together. We have a privilege and a responsibility to honor God and who we are. There's a prayer that Jesus taught his disciples. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. What's the next line? Yeah. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Where? On earth. What does that mean for us? It means, our Father who art in heaven, may your name be praised, may be hallowed, set apart, honored. And may your kingdom come and your will be done on Bell Hill. May it be done in Quinsigaman Village. May it be done in Maine South. May it be done on Vernon Hill. May it be done on the west side and the south side. May it be done in... May your kingdom come and your will be done in Great Brook Valley, in Plumlee Village. May your will be done throughout this city and beyond the city, around the globe. That's what God wants. That's what he's called. That's why we planted a church in Bell Hill and why we're trying to plant another location in Quinsigamon Village. It's so that God's kingdom comes and his will is done throughout, throughout this city. That's what we're doing. We're not just building a building. We're trying to bring God's kingdom rule in the power of his Holy Spirit by his authority and command throughout our city. Amen. So, we pray the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples. We ask for God's grace to do his will like it's done in heaven, gladly, joyfully, without reservation, without holding anything back. We do our work as under the, unto the Lord, unto his glory and purpose. We make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything he has commanded because everything he has commanded is good and for their good and to his glory. We obey his commandment to love God, to love our neighbors with all our heart, soul, and mind, and strength. We love our neighbors like we love ourselves. We want for them what we want for ourselves. We want, we want for ourselves, what do we want? We want good jobs and living wages and, and health care. We want good schools for our kids. We want them to live in a safe and attractive environment. We want them to know God. So that's what we're trying to bring into the neighborhoods that we go into. We want to love our neighbors so that they experience, that they have the things that we want for our own children, our own families. And whatever it takes to do that, we ask God to give us the, the wisdom and the creativity and the courage to do that. 
we act justly, we love mercy, we walk humbly with our God. We walk humbly with our God because it's all his work, his power, his life flowing through our nostrils into us, enabling us. It's not our strength, it's his. We remember the grace wins, so we offer the grace that we have received. We offer that to others around us so that they receive that grace as well. And we seek to overcome evil with good as we talked about last week. And then we see the vision from Revelation 7 and beyond. This vision of people from every tribe and tongue and language and nation coming together as one. Worshiping before the throne of God. Say, hallelujah, may it be so. We live in a world that's so divided by, by racial tension, by bias, by prejudice, by Various political opinions. It's even divided by sports affiliations. We live in a world that's divided by the craziest things. And God has called us to be a reconciled and reconciling community, a peacemaking community that comes together and embraces one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. And we cry out, Lord, bring us more brothers and sisters. And Lord, help us to go out and proclaim your good news and live among them in such a way that they see your good, our good works and give glory to our Father in heaven and become brothers and sisters to us now. So our prayer is that we bring good to the neighborhoods, to Bell Hill and to Quinsigamond Village and all of the various neighborhoods so that more and more, and pe- more people are touched with the life and the truth and the grace and the power of the living Lord Jesus Christ who is in our midst so that the family of God grows and the rule, the reign The realm of heaven expands here on earth, here on earth to the praise and glory of God. And we wait for the coming of Jesus, the second coming of Jesus with a certain hope and with great overflowing thanks and praise because God is good and he's our father king and we belong to him and we ask that the whole world know it and come to him now while they still have a chance. Amen? Let's pray.